Welcome to Author in Your Classroom from Plazoom. My name is Helen Mully, and the author joining you in your classroom or wherever you're listening for this episode is the brilliant poet, writer, musician, and self-proclaimed troublemaker, Benjamin Zephaniah. Welcome to the podcast, Benjamin. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> hello, it's lovely to have you. Benjamin, I am sure that all our listeners will know about you and your work, and I expect lots of them will have shared your poems in the classroom too. But what they might not know, though, is that the world of, of writing and books and poetry wasn't exactly one that opened up especially easy for you when you were their age, even, even though your head was already full of poems and stories. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about that. Well, I grew up in a house where there were absolutely no books. I remember once I was trying to read a book and my father told me off. Oh. And actually, it was a bit worse than that. He kind of slapped the book out of my hand and said, you know, what's the problem? Have you got nothing to do? And oh. he found, I think he gave me a gun and said, go and shoot some cowboys or something. So there's absolutely no books. But oddly, there was a lot of poetry, mainly from my mother, who was just full of Caribbean poems. And there were poems with a reason, you know, so there'd be a recipe <laughs> or a message for naughty boys or something like that, all in rhyme. But I still loved the book, the engineering, if you like, the shape of a book. And I loved when I saw boys and girls and adults sitting down and reading. I just felt that it looked so intelligent. <laughs> so I wanted to be a part of that world, but there was absolutely nobody around me that was kind of a, a good example. I also remember many years ago, um, there's, there's an organisation called the Boys Brigade, and uh, it's this kind of slightly, it's like the Scouts, slightly military thing for young kids. <laughs> and in those days, I guess adults still do it, this guy went along the line and he said to these boys, what do you want to do when you grow up? And most of the boys go, I want to be a policeman, I want to be a fireman. And I went, I'd like to be a poet. <laughs> and he looked at me and he went, when was the last time you saw a poet skin a rabbit? <laughs> There's no answer to that, really, is there? I haven't seen anybody skin a rabbit, but you know, he's trying to tell me that you know, real men are not poets. Um, yeah. So actually, everything was kind of going against me in a way, but I knew what I wanted to do. So how did that happen? How did you end up turning that drive and, and that dream in, into a reality? Well, I remember when I was about eight years old, I can remember it perfectly, sitting down and imagining my future. And it was like, I'm going to do these poems, right? These poems, and they're going to be like, they're going to talk about the world. I did not understand what the word politics meant, but they're going to talk about the world and they're going to talk about all the famines and the wars. And at the same time, they're going to make people happy. They're going to be funny. And it's going to be poetry that's like music. And uh, and then I'm going to take that and I'm going to write some stories and I'm going to write plays. And, and, and I just couldn't imagine. There was no one else I saw doing it, but I just imagined this world, that this job that I would have. And then everybody said, put it aside. Come on, it's a fantasy. So that's what I did. I was doing my poems for my friends in the playground and things like that. But um, as I got older and became a teenager, uh -huh. I kind of got involved with the wrong crowd. So I began to get in trouble. And then one day I said, you know what? When I was eight years old, I had a dream and I want to go back to that dream. I want to go back to that dream and make that dream a reality. So I just left the city I was living in, 
went to London and I was really lucky. Some of the first people I found were creative people. They were writers, Mm -hmm. mainly comedians, a lot of them who have become really famous now. Um, But they were just starting off in their careers and we had similar ideas. And so that's how it happened for me. People were, were then listening to the, the poems that you were creating at that, at that point and, and presumably you were, you were getting feedback from them about how those poems were making them feel. Was that an important part of the process? Oh, very important. I, I can remember the first time I performed in London, I went to like a community centre and um, I saw this girl that I really liked and I started talking to her and she said, what do you do? And I went, well, I'm a poet, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, she walked away from me. The next thing I saw was she was on stage saying, I've got a friend who's a poet. Can you come and do a poem for us? <laughs> I was like, Be careful what you say. I know, yeah. I just went on stage and did this poem and everybody loved it. And it really was a case of kind of just going to shows and going on stage in between acts. Yeah. And quite unusually for a poet, I used to go to um, music concerts. In those days, it was like... Uh, punk music and reggae music was really big. Yeah. So I went to gigs with, you know, people who are well known now, like Bob Marley and The Clash and and uh, bands like that, Ian Jury and The Blockheads. And I would literally just wait at the side of the stage and say, can I go in? Can I go on and do a poem in between the bands? And they'd let me go on and do a poem and the audience would go more, more, more. And I'd end up kind of doing a half an hour set. <laughs> then eventually I was able to get my name on the bill. So it was a kind of gradual thing. Yeah. It was a little bit unusual because I was taking poetry into places where there wasn't poetry. And that was an obsession of mine. Yeah. A friend of mine called Adrian Mitchell wrote a poem that says, most people ignore most poetry because most poetry ignores most people. And I wanted to write poetry that didn't ignore people, that people could understand, that people could dance to. Yeah. And at this point, everything seems to be happening. You know, the, the, the poetry is, is happening in your head and you're, you're sharing it directly with people. You're taking it out to, to where they need to hear it. But that eight-year-old who had that dream, that eight-year-old who had that dream was also writing books and, and writing plays and, and sharing those with people. And you ended up doing that too. So how, how did this oral tradition turn into a, a written body of work as well? Somebody, some really clever person said to me one day, said, uh, you'll never be a real poet until you're published. You have to have a book. Right. And I thought, I've got to have a book. I've got to have a book. (laughs) I am very dyslexic. I mean, very, very dyslexic. All my poems are in my head. Mm -hmm. And so I just got a friend and she just wrote down the poems for me. I just said them. She wrote them down, put them in a book. Mm -hmm. And I managed to get a publisher. And that was okay, but to be honest, I mean, that book was like the first independent book in Britain, I think, to make it in the bestseller list. Wow. And so there was a lot of talk about me on television and radio. But when I walked around the council estates and the areas where I lived in London and Birmingham, people knew me, but they did not read the book. They didn't read books. They were like my family. (laughs) They were congratulating me because they saw me on television. They were congratulating me because I was a bit famous. But they hadn't read the book, even if they'd heard the poems. <laughs> yeah. So then I said to myself, my mission is still to take poetry to places orally as well as publishing books. And I was really lucky. I, I used to publish with a publisher called um, Puffin. I'd done a couple of books with them. And then the editor there, she went to Bloomsbury, the publishers. 
and she had a couple of conditions. <laughs> One condition was that she would publish, or they should publish, Benjamin Zephaniah as a novelist and not as a poet. And the other condition was that they would publish a book called Harry Potter. Oh, I think our listeners may have heard of that one. Right, yes, it's quite a well-known story. (laughs) But she's a great editor, and she saw something in that book, and she saw something in me as well. Wow, you you and Harry Potter. (laughs) Yes, yeah. And it's really interesting. My first couple of books, she's editing them the same time as she's editing Harry Potter. I remember she said to me that um, it was so different because Harry Potter was, of course, fantasy, and it was this (laughs) world of this public school and all that, and my books were like gritty reality, you know, the complete opposite. (laughs) But um, what people don't realise, and I always tell people that want to become writers this, is that you never get it right the first time. Writing is not about writing, it's about rewriting. You always have to rewrite. And then, even when you've done that, you need a good editor. The best writers in the world have the best editors in the world. Definitely. And so, and the thing is, editors are not credited, really. You know, you don't really see their name on the book or anything. But, um, I mean, a good editor, Emma, my editor... She can read one of my publications like she's a seven-year-old. And then she can read it like she's a 50-year-old. Yeah. You know, it's it's an amazing talent, one that I don't have. Yeah, books are the combination of lots of people working together, aren't they, I suppose? And Benjamin, you... (laughs) You do. You you live such a full creative life. You do live the life that, that you were describing in, in that eight-year-old's dream. You know, not only do you have books of poems and you perform poems, you've got books for young children, young adults, and you make music, you perform, you write plays, you act. You spend a lot of time speaking out for the things you feel are, are really important, like animal rights and a more equal society. There's just so much that we could talk about, but we are limited on time. So what I would like to talk about, if that's okay with you, is your latest book, which you wrote as part of Scholastic's Voices series. And and that's a series which brings out stories from history, but told by the voices that we don't usually hear, because usually somebody else is telling the stories of, of those times. And the story that you tell is called Windrush Child. Now, our listeners may already have an idea then what we're talking about and, and, and what is happening, but perhaps you could tell us a bit more about the story and, and how you came to write it. Well, I came to write it because there was this Windrush scandal happening. These were people from the Caribbean who came over on British passports, usually their parents' passport, because they were young. They are now 60, 70 years old, and then suddenly they've been told that they are not British citizens. Some of them have been arrested. Um, Some of them have been deported. Uh, Many have lost their jobs because employers weren't allowed to employ so-called illegal immigrants. And um, it was in the news quite a lot. But they were always talking about the adult version of these people. I just wanted to explore it from the child's point of view or the young person's point of view. Yeah. What it would be like kind of, you know, being seven or eight or nine, living in Jamaica. In many ways... If you're a little kid growing up in Jamaica and you are not thinking about your pension or anything like that, Jamaica's a paradise. You, know? <laughs> you look around and there's there's a there's a pineapple on a tree, you know, and there's a there's a mango, you know, and, and there's all these wonderful animals and it's and it's beautiful. But then you don't have 
certain securities that we have in Britain. Yeah. But kids don't see that, you know. They just see a forest, uh, you know, a play in a forest every day. (laughs) Um, Yeah, paradise. This boy is living in Jamaica. He's quite happy. His father is in England, like many men and women did around that time. They came to England to help rebuild the country after the Second World War. And he's waiting for his father to return. Yeah. And then one day he finds out that actually his father's not going to return, but him and his mother are going to England. Yeah. It's about how he goes to England and growing up in England and the racism and discrimination he experiences. It's a very, it, this, is a, this is a novel where you don't want to give away the end. <laughs> no. But it's about how he grows up and how he encounters people and the different experiences he has growing up in England. Yes. And do you know what? I think it would be really great if our listeners could hear a little bit of, of the story just so that they can get an idea for themselves how, how it sounds, what, it, what, what is going on. So I'm going to pause just for a minute and then we'll be right back. We'll hear a little bit from Windrush Child and then maybe we can talk a bit more about it. Welcome back to Author in Your Classroom from Plazoom with our guest for this episode, Benjamin Zephaniah. Benjamin, we're going to hear a reading now from your latest book, Windrush Child. Before it starts, it would be great if you could explain where we are in the story so our listeners can really understand what's happening. So Leonard and his mum have been on a ship from Jamaica and they've been on a ship for about two weeks. Then they wake up one day and they see land. And there's this excitement going on because for the first time they see the promised land, if you like, England. And it's about how he kind of prepares and the excitement of kind of reaching the mother country. (laughs) Okay, let's hear. On Monday, 28th of April, 1958, I woke up to the sound of people singing as mum shook me in my bed. Wake up, Leonard, she said. Wake up, come look. I was still in my pyjamas and she was wearing her night clothes. But she wasn't bothered. She took my hand and we rushed out onto the deck where a group of other passengers, some still in their night clothes too, were looking out into the distance. They were all chatting excitedly, pointing at a thin strip of land I could just about make out. That is England. England, here we come. The mother country. People started acting more frantically than ever, pushing past one another with excitement. The captain's voice came over the speaker system and could be heard all over the ship. This is your captain speaking, and I am delighted to announce that in just under one hour we will be docking in the port of Southampton. I hope that you have enjoyed your journey. I and the whole crew would like to wish you all the best for your time in the United Kingdom. Please ensure that you have your papers ready for inspection when you leave the vessel. Mum took my hand and led me back to our cabin. We got washed and dressed, then bundled our belongings into the suitcase. Mum grabbed her passport and held it tightly. You should only speak to English people when they speak to you, and you should do whatever they tell you to do, she said. 
I put the suit on that I wore when I boarded the ship. It was the only one I had. Mum really got dressed up. She only ever dressed like this on special occasions. She wore high heel shoes, a pretty bright red dress, with a small hat that sat to one side of her head. I couldn't understand why she was trying so hard to look good now. We were only getting off a ship. We waited for a while with the suitcase packed and placed next to the door until we began to feel the ship slowing down. Then, for the first time in two weeks, we stopped moving. We rushed to the deck and waited in line to leave the ship. It felt like we were there for hours, moving slowly, step by step, until we got to the stairs. At the top were two men, wearing the uniform that meant they worked for the Queen. Mum handed her passport to one of the men. He looked at it, stamped a page, and then gave it back. He looked at me. I don't have a passport, I said. That's all right, young man, he said. Don't worry, you're one of us now. You'll have your own passport when you grow up. As we went down the steps, I had to hold on to the handrail because Mum had to take the suitcase by herself and it looked difficult. I just wished I was big enough to help her. Below, I could see a crowd that gathered. There were newspaper reporters, their pens and papers at the ready and even people with television cameras. As we got off the ship and walked onto the dock, the cold hit me. It was freezing, and my suit was not warm enough for the English weather. I felt the chill run all the way down my spine. I took my first sharp intake of English air. It tasted different, as Mum quickly whipped out a blanket from our case and wrapped around my shoulders, just as we were approached by a television reporter. He was a small, stocky white man, wearing a big coat. Excuse me. I ask you why you come to England, he asked loudly, the camera in our faces. My mum halted and turned to him respectfully. I have come to see my husband and to make a better life for my child, sir. Could you not have made a good life for your child back home then, miss? The man responded. I have come to help my husband rebuild the mum country and to give my child the opportunity to grow and prosper. My mum's voice had changed. She was trying her best to sound English. I couldn't understand why she was speaking the way she did and why we were being asked so many questions. Do you think that you'll fit into life in England then, miss? The man continued, bringing the camera even closer to our faces. Your child might find it difficult looking like that, the man gestured towards my blanket. He's not used to the English weather and our clothes are neatly packed in preparation to start rebuilding the mother country, sir. England is part of Britain, and Jamaica is part of Britain, so we are excited to meet more British people and to rebuild the motherland. The reporter nodded and swiftly moved on to interrogate someone else. In Jamaica, we didn't have televisions yet, but I knew it was full of famous white people, so I wondered if, having just arrived in England, I was now a famous black boy. I looked back and saw that he was talking to everyone he could and I realised that we can't all be famous. But it was nice to know that I could be on television, 
even if I was just looking cold. You see, to me, this is a really important scene. In the book, it's it's the actual moment where, where Leonard is suddenly completely cut off from his old life and thrown into a new one. That The bit on the ship was, was kind of a limbo period. And I got an impression when I was reading the book that it was it was almost a bit like a, a reverse Wizard of Oz effect. So the beginning of the book is all bright colours and and warm sunshine and and ripe fruit. And then he he hits England and it's like bam! Suddenly it's grey and it's cold and and it's almost in, in black and white. Did you have that idea of of a shift from from colour to, to black and white when you were writing? I knew the idea. I, I mean, I, I didn't write and I was thinking about it, but I just know that that's what happened to a lot of Caribbean people, that they ca- they came over. There was this kind of, uh, I'm not quite sure what to call it, this kind of, they were on the ship and the ship actually wasn't too bad. I mean, because they had Caribbean food, there were people there, they were singing and dancing. A lot of people bought their guitars and their instruments and things like that. Yeah. Then when they arrive, it's like, it's so grey. You know, and if they arrive in the winter, it's so cold. Yeah. One of the funny stories I've, I've heard, I, I don't think it's in the book, actually. I can't remember if it's in the book, actually. I've got to be very careful. <laughs> um, but um, it was a story of somebody that landed and looked in the sky and went, wow, the sun's shining and it's so cold. How did they do that? You know, <laughs> because in Jamaica, the sunshine means heat, it means warm. And they can't understand why the sun can be shining and it can be so cold. But yeah, there, there is kind of greyness. I mean, racism, we know racism is wrong. You know, we know to be a racist, it's just a terrible position to hold. And it's kind of unintelligent, if there's such a word. It's unintellectual. The thing is, when the Caribbean people left at this time to come to England, they were also British. They were told they were British. Yeah. Leonard keeps on saying, you know, well, his mum keeps saying to him, the Queen said, it doesn't matter, you are British. You're part of this whole idea of Britishness. Yeah. In the reading, she says she's looking forward to meeting other British people. Yes. These are her brothers and sisters she's coming to meet in a sense, you know. Yeah. And the other thing you have to understand and it's a strange thing saying this, it's kind of message for racists, that <laughs> the country, Britain, was kind of at a really low point. It was just starting to recover from the war. The health service needed workers. People didn't want to clean the streets. People didn't want to drive the buses. There's even stories about, you know, how people didn't want to look after their elderly. They got people from the Caribbean to bath their grandmother. <laughs> so, so that's what my parents came over and did. Yeah. And, and so it's a real change for the Caribbean people, but they really wanted to help because they, they saw Britain as the mother country. Yeah. And remember, Jamaica didn't have independence as well. So they thought that one day we'd have our independence and we'll be, you know, brother and sister countries. There are definitely, there, there are some really joyful, beautiful scenes in, in this book. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a story about a family building itself back up again and and it's a story about how how Leonard finds his space in this new country you know it's it's full of love and and warmth and all those important things but there are also some really difficult harsh upsetting scenes as well did you find those hard to write I have to say I didn't really find them hard to write because I know them so well All those difficult scenes and the happy ones are things that I've experienced or friends of mine have experienced. 
There is no fantasy in this novel at all. The only thing I've done is I've kind of created them around one person's life. But I know these things have happened to many friends of mine. When I start the book, I make this comment about the language because there's a lot of strong language in there. But there was no way I could write a book like this without using quite strong language. Otherwise, it would also be a bit fake, you know. Yeah. So I, I tell you when I felt it, when I felt really emotional was after writing the book. When I get it back and it's actually in a book form rather than a manuscript on a computer. Yeah. And then I just sat down and read it as a book. (laughs) Then I was quite moved, which is strange because I wrote it. But because I know then how you are going to read it. Yes. You know, I know how Helen's going to read it. I know how, you know, all these other people are going to read it. And that's a very special thing because it's like having a a little child and and leaving it in the world and it grows up and it goes out there and and I have no control over it then. The book's gone into the public domain. Yes, which is why it's it's important that it is such a a, a truthful book, I think. You dedicate dedicate the book to your twin sister Um, and because you say, and I quote, you really want her to read a book and she should start with this one. She she doesn't read books, you know. Um, (laughs) she, she, She does not read books. She doesn't really follow my work that much. And one day she came and saw a play of mine, Refugee Boy, and she was in the audience, sat next to me. And it was one of these plays where after the play, they asked questions um, of me. And uh, she came away and she went, you're quite good, you are, aren't you? <laughs> you know? I mean, we were 60 or something, you know what I mean? She just this, and she said, she said um, I think I may read something of yours one day. Well, I agree with you. I think she should read this this one. It's exactly the kind of book that has that effect on people. When I finished it, after I'd stopped crying, which took a while, the first thing I did was I took it upstairs to to my sons, my 15-year-old boys, and I told them that I really, really wanted them to read this too. I think everybody should. So I do hope that everyone listening might be inspired to, to go and, and find the book and read it for themselves. I also want to remind um, parents and teachers who are listening that we produce a free resources pack to go with every episode of Author in Your Classroom so children can take what they hear and they can use it to create their own amazing writing and in this case they can use it to reach into history and and perhaps find some more voices that need to be shared. The resources can be downloaded from plazoom.com and the details are in the episode notes. Benjamin, we're nearly out of time. I I don't know where it's gone. There are a couple more things I'd like to to talk to you about so we can have a bit of a wriggle and a glass of water and then we'll come back to finish off the episode. Welcome back to Author in Your Classroom from Plazoom with the wonderful Benjamin Zephaniah, poet, author and musician. Benjamin, I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about about barriers, barriers to, to reading and writing, because I know that some of our listeners will be sitting in classrooms or at home or in the car at the moment. And they might be thinking about their own barriers and perhaps they're dyslexic too, or perhaps they speak more than one language or have other issues with, with perhaps their sight or their hearing, or perhaps it's none of those things, but but somehow writing just seems like a challenge and, and books don't seem welcoming to them. And I, I wonder if you have any advice for, for those listeners that might help them to see things a little differently. 
The people that probably find writing most difficult are the people that have no barriers. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you are born with a silver spoon in your mouth and everything's fine, everything's okay, then you'll have probably not so much to write about. You'll have to do a lot of research. If you've had barriers, if you've had struggles, if you find it difficult reading and writing, and then you write, that's amazing. And so, you know, remember, everybody, you are important. Even if you sometimes you don't feel important. Sometimes I don't feel important. Helen just called me wonderful. I haven't been called wonderful for years, <laughs> you know. Um, but your story is important. And trust me, if you don't write your story, somebody will write it for you. And then you can't complain, you know. You can't say, well, <laughs> why is this person representing me? Represent yourself. And in these days, you don't have to wait for the publisher. You can publish your own story on the internet. You can publish it in the school magazine, on the school website, on a fanzine. Just get it out there. Nobody can stop you from having ideas. You can have ideas, doesn't matter on the state of your hearing, your sight, your dyslexia, your race, your gender. Nobody can stop your ideas. So don't stop your ideas yourself. I'm, I'm speechless now. I'm, I'm, I'm gone. That, that, yeah, we'll edit this so that I say something clever. <laughs> Benjamin, finally, we've talked a lot about, about Windrush Child today. But of course, as we started off by saying, you, you are you know, your first and foremost a, a poet. And I wanted to know what you might say to anyone listening who, who thinks that poetry is, is, is dull or, or difficult or, or not for them. Well, I used to think poetry was oral, and then I understood that you could write it down. Yeah. And then I understood that there was war poetry, some of it very serious and funny poetry. And then there's a thing called nonsense poetry. I mean, we are all thinking poetically all the time. It's just that poets just capture the moment and write it down or remember it. Don't be scared of poetry. I've never met a person that has no poetry in their life. If you buy a birthday card for somebody, most of the time you look at the words inside it. You know, poetry is all around you. Don't be scared of it. It's just words that we put into an order. I used to think nurses were women. I used to think police were men. I used to think poets were boring until I became one of them. <laughs> That's brilliant. Benjamin, thank you so much for being our guest on, on the podcast today. I know I'll go away with lots to think about and I'm sure our listeners will too. And I really hope that they might be inspired to tell some, some new stories of their own and, and perhaps let some of their own inner poems out. Once again, to all the teachers and parents listening, I, I can't recommend Windrush Child highly enough. It's a brilliant, moving, important book that I think belongs in every classroom. Thank you. I've been an author in the classroom. <laughs> you have. And we'll be back with another episode of Author in Your Classroom very soon. See you then. Author in Your Classroom is brought to you by Plazoom, where we are passionate about making great literacy lessons easy with inspiring, ready-to-go resources created by teachers to cover the whole of the primary curriculum. So, whether you're a teacher desperate for SATS revision that pupils will actually enjoy, a parent just as baffled by fronted adverbials as your child, or anyone looking for fun ways to keep children reading and writing during the summer holidays, we've got hundreds of brilliant ideas to explore. Take a look for yourself at plazoom.com 
where you can sign up to our newsletter and be the first to find out about our special offers and the new resources that are added to the site every single week. Every episode of Author in Your Classroom is packed with writing advice and inspiration from some of the world's best-loved children's writers. Plus, there are free activities and worksheets based on each author's work to spark children's imagination on plazoom.com. Just check the episode notes for links and more. You can subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. We want to reach as many pupils in as many classrooms as possible, so please do give us a rating or a review, but above all, tell your colleagues about us and help spread the word. We know that a love of reading opens doors, not just to success at school and beyond, but to a lifetime of excitement, adventure and discovery. Let us help you make it happen with Author in Your Classroom and Plazoom.